Question 83, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues, The Virtue of Justice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues, the Virtue of Justice, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 83 of Prayer in 17 Articles, Part 2, Articles 7 through 12. Seventh Article, Whether We Ought to Pray for Others. Objection 1 it would seem that we ought not to pray for others. In praying, we ought to conform to the pattern given by our Lord. Now in the Lord's Prayer, we make petitions for ourselves, not for others. Thus we say, Give us this day our daily bread, etc. Therefore, we should not pray for others. Objection to further. Prayer is offered that it may be heard. Now one of the conditions required for prayer that it may be heard is that one pray for oneself. Wherefore Augustine, in commenting on John 16.23, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you, says, everyone is heard when he prays for himself, not when he prays for all. Wherefore he does not simply say, he will give it, but he will give it to you. Therefore, it would seem that we ought not to pray for others, but only for ourselves. Objection 3 further. We are forbidden to pray for others if they are wicked, according to Jeremiah 7.16. Therefore do not then pray for this people, and do not withstand me, for I will not hear thee. On the other hand, we are not bound to pray for the good, since they are heard when they pray for themselves. Therefore, it would seem that we ought not to pray for others. On the contrary, it is written in James 5.16, Pray for one another, that you may be saved. I answer that, as stated above in Article 6, when we pray, we ought to ask for what we ought to desire. Now we ought to desire good things not only for ourselves, but also for others. For this is essential to the love which we owe to our neighbor, as stated above in question 25, articles 1 and 12, question 27, article 2, and in question 31, article 1. Therefore charity requires us to pray for others. Hence Chrysostom says, in his homily number 14 on the Gospel of Matthew, Necessity binds us to pray for ourselves. Fraternal charity urges us to pray for others. And the prayer that fraternal charity proffers is sweeter to God than that which is the outcome of necessity. Reply to Objection 1. As Cyprian says in On the Lord's Prayer, We say, Our Father, and not My Father. Give us, and not give me, because the master of unity did not wish us to pray privately, 
that is, for ourselves alone, for he wished each one to pray for all, even as he himself bore all in one. Reply to Objection 2. It is a condition of prayer that one pray for oneself, not as though it were necessary in order that prayer be meritorious, but as being necessary in order that prayer may not fail in its effects of impetration. For it sometimes happens that we pray for another with piety and perseverance and ask for things relating to his salvation, and yet it is not granted on account of some obstacle on the part of the person we are praying for, for according to Jeremiah 15.1, If Moses and Samuel stand before me, my soul is not towards this people. And yet the prayer will be meritorious for the person who prays thus out of charity. According to Psalm 34, verse 13, My prayer shall be turned into my bosom. That is, though it profit them not, I am not deprived of my reward. As the gloss expounds it. Reply to Objection 3. We ought to pray even for sinners, that they may be converted, and for the just, that they may persevere and advance in holiness. Yet those who pray are heard not for all sinners, but for some, since they are heard for the predestined, but not for those who are foreknown to death. Even as the correction whereby we correct the brethren has an effect in the predestined, but not in the reprobate, according to Ecclesiastes 7.14, no man can correct whom God hath despised. Hence it is written, in 1 John 5.16, He that knoweth his brother to sin, a sin which is not to death, let him ask, and his life shall be given him, who sinneth not to death. Now just as the benefit of correction must not be refused to any man so long as he lives here below, because we cannot distinguish the predestined from the reprobate, as Augustine says in On Admonition and Grace 15, so too no man should be denied the help of prayer. We ought also to pray for the just for three reasons. First, because the prayers of a multitude are more easily heard, wherefore a gloss on Romans 15.30, Help me in your prayers, says, The apostle rightly tells the lesser brethren to pray for him, for many lesser ones, if they be united together in one mind, become great, and it is impossible for the prayers of a multitude not to obtain that which is possible to be obtained by prayer. Secondly, that many may thank God for the graces conferred on the just, which graces conduce to the profit of many, according to the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 1.11. Thirdly, that the more perfect may not wax proud, seeing that they find that they need the prayers of the less perfect. Eighth Article whether we ought to pray for our enemies. Objection 1. It would seem that we ought not to pray for our enemies. According to Romans 15.4, What things soever were written were written for our learning. 
Now holy writ contains many imprecations against enemies. Thus it is written in Psalm 611, Let all my enemies be ashamed and be troubled. Let them be ashamed and be troubled very speedily. Therefore, we too should pray against rather than for our enemies. Objection to further. To be revenged on one's enemies is harmful to them. But holy men seek vengeance of their enemies, according to Apocalypse 6.10, How long dost thou not revenge our blood on them that dwell on earth? Wherefore, they rejoice in being revenged on their enemies, according to Psalm 57.11, The just shall rejoice when he shall see the revenge. Therefore, we should not pray for our enemies, but against them. Objection 3 further. Man's deed should not be contrary to his prayer. Now sometimes men lawfully attack their enemies, else all wars would be unlawful, which is opposed to what we have said above in question 40, article 1. Therefore, we should not pray for our enemies. On the contrary, it is written in Matthew 5, 44, Pray for them that persecute and calumniate you. I answer that. To pray for another is an act of charity, as stated above in Article 7. Wherefore, we are bound to pray for our enemies in the same manner as we are bound to love them. Now, it was explained above in the Treatise on Charity, Question 25, Articles 8 and 9, how we are bound to love our enemies, namely, that we must love in them their nature, not their sin, and that to love our enemies in general is a matter of precept, while to love them in the individual is not a matter of precept except in the preparedness of the mind, so that a man must be prepared to love his enemy even in the individual and to help him in a case of necessity or if his enemy should beg his forgiveness. But to love one's enemies absolutely in the individual, and to assist them, is an act of perfection. In like manner, it is a matter of obligation that we should not exclude our enemies from the general prayers which we offer up for others. But it is a matter of perfection, and not of obligation, to pray for them individually, except in certain special cases. Reply to Objection 1. The imprecations contained in Holy Writ may be understood in four ways. First, according to the custom of the prophets, to foretell the future under the veil of an imprecation, as Augustine states in his commentary on the Sermon of the Mount 121. Secondly, in the sense that certain temporal evils are sometimes inflicted by God on the wicked for their correction. Thirdly, because they are understood to be pronounced not against the men themselves, but against the kingdom of sin, with the purpose, to wit, of destroying sin by the correction of men. Fourthly, by way of conformity of our will to the divine justice, 
with regard to the damnation of those who are obstinate in sin. Reply to Objection 2. As Augustine states in the same book, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, 122, the martyr's vengeance is the overthrow of the kingdom of sin, because they suffer so much while it reigned. Or, as he says again, in his Questions on the Old and New Testament, 68, their prayer for vengeance is expressed not in words but in their minds, even as the blood of Abel cried from the earth. They rejoice in vengeance not for its own sake, but for the sake of divine justice. Reply to Objection 3. It is lawful to attack one's enemies that they may be restrained from sin, and this is for their own good and for the good of others. Consequently, it is even lawful in praying to ask that temporal evils be inflicted on our enemies in order that they may mend their ways. Thus prayer and deed will not be contrary to one another. Ninth Article Whether the Seven Petitions of the Lord's Prayer are fittingly assigned. Objection 1. It would seem that the Seven Petitions of the Lord's Prayer are not fittingly assigned. It is useless to ask that to be hallowed, which is already holy. But the name of God is always holy, according to Luke one forty nine. Holy is his name. Again, his kingdom is everlasting, according to Psalm 144.13. Thy kingdom is a kingdom of all ages. Again, God's will is always fulfilled, according to Isaiah 46, verse 10. All my will shall be done. Therefore, it is useless to ask for the name of God to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done. Objection to further. One must withdraw from evil before attaining good. Therefore, it seems unfitting for the petitions relating to the attainment of good to be set forth before those relating to the removal of evil. Objection 3 further. One asks for a thing that it may be given to one. Now the chief gift of God is the Holy Ghost and those gifts that we receive through him. Therefore, the petitions seem to be unfittingly assigned since they do not correspond to the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Objection 4. Further, according to Luke, only five petitions are mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, as appears from the eleventh chapter. Therefore, it was superfluous for Matthew to mention seven. Objection 5. Further, it seems useless to seek to win the benevolence of one who forestalls us by his benevolence. Now God forestalls us by his benevolence, since he first hath loved us, according to 1 John 4.19. Therefore, it is useless to preface the petitions with the words, Father who art in heaven, which seem to indicate a desire to win God's benevolence. 
On the contrary, the authority of Christ who composed this prayer suffices. I answer that, the Lord's Prayer is most perfect because, as Augustine says in his letter to Proba, if we pray rightly and fittingly, we can say nothing else but what is contained in this prayer of our Lord. For since prayer interprets our desires, as it were, before God, then alone is it right to ask for something in our prayers when it is right that we should desire it. Now in the Lord's Prayer, not only do we ask for all that we may rightly desire, but also in the order wherein we ought to desire them, so that this prayer not only teaches us to ask, but also directs all our affections. Thus it is evident that the first thing to be the object of our desire is the end, and afterwards, whatever is directed to the end. Now our end is God towards whom our affections tend in two ways. First, by our willing the glory of God. Secondly, by willing to enjoy his glory. The first belongs to the love whereby we love God in himself, while the second belongs to the love whereby we love ourselves in God. Wherefore the first petition is expressed thus, Hallowed be thy name and the second thus, Thy kingdom come, by which we ask to come to the glory of his kingdom. To this same end, a thing directs us in two ways, in one way by its very nature, in another way accidentally. Of its very nature, the good which is useful for an end directs us to that end. Now a thing is useful in two ways to that end which is beatitude. In one way, directly and principally, according to the merit whereby we may merit beatitude by obeying God, and in this respect we ask, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In another way, instrumentally, and as it were, helping us to merit, and in this respect we say, Give us this day our daily bread, whether we understand this of the sacramental bread, the daily use of which is profitable to man, and in which all the other sacraments are contained, or of the bread of the body, so that it denotes all sufficiency of food, as Augustine says in his letter to Proba, since the Eucharist is the chief sacrament, and bread is the chief food. Thus in the Gospel of Matthew we read, supersubstantial, that is, principle, as Jerome expounds it. We are directed to beatitude accidentally by the removal of obstacles. Now there are three obstacles to our attainment of beatitude. First, there is sin, which directly excludes a man from the kingdom, according to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, etc., shall possess the kingdom of God. And to this refer the words, Forgive us our trespasses. Secondly, there is temptation which hinders us from keeping God's will, and to this we refer when we say, And lead us not into temptation, whereby we do not ask not to be tempted, 
but not to be conquered by temptation, which is to be led into temptation. Thirdly, there is the present penal state, which is a kind of obstacle to a sufficiency of life, and to this we refer in the words, deliver us from evil. Reply to Objection 1. As Augustine says, when we say, Hallowed be thy name, we do not mean that God's name is not holy. But when we ask that men may treat it as a holy thing, and this pertains to the diffusion of God's glory among men. When we say, Thy kingdom come, we do not imply that God is not reigning now, but we excite in ourselves the desire for that kingdom, that it may come to us, and that we may reign therein. The words, Thy will be done, rightly signify, May thy commandments be obeyed on earth as in heaven, that is, by men as well as by angels. Hence, these three petitions will be perfectly fulfilled in the life to come, while the other four, according to Augustine, belong to the needs of the present life. Reply to Objection 2. Since prayer is the interpreter of desire, the order of the petitions corresponds with the order, not of execution, but of desire or intention, where the end precedes the things that are directed to the end, and attainment of good precedes removal of evil. Reply to Objection 3. Augustine, in his commentary on the Sermon of the Mount 2.11, adapts the seven petitions to the gifts and beatitudes. He says, If it is fear of God whereby blessed are the poor in spirit, let us ask that God's name be hallowed among men with a chaste fear. If it is piety whereby blessed are the meek, let us ask that his kingdom may come so that we may become meek and no longer resist him. If it is knowledge whereby blessed are they that mourn, let us pray that his will be done, for thus we shall mourn no more. If it is fortitude whereby blessed are they that hunger, let us pray that our daily bread be given to us. If it is counsel whereby blessed are the merciful, let us forgive the trespasses of others, that our own may be forgiven. If it is understanding whereby blessed are the pure in heart, let us pray, lest we have a double heart by seeking after worldly things which are the occasion of our temptations. If it is wisdom whereby blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God, let us pray to be delivered from evil, for if we be delivered, we shall by that very fact become the free children of God. Reply to Objection 4 According to Augustine, in his Enchiridion 116, Luke included not seven but five petitions in the Lord's Prayer, for by omitting it, he shows that the third petition is a kind of repetition of the two that precede, and thus helps us to understand it better. Because to wit, the will of God tends chiefly to this, that we come to the knowledge of his holiness and to reign together with him. 
Again, the last petition mentioned by Matthew, deliver us from evil, is omitted by Luke, so that each one may know himself to be delivered from evil if he not be led into temptation. Reply to Objection 5. Prayer is offered up to God, not that we may bend him, but that we may excite in ourselves the confidence to ask, which confidence is excited in us chiefly by the consideration of his charity in our regard, whereby he wills our good. Wherefore we say, Our Father, and of his excellence, whereby he is able to fulfill it, wherefore we say, Who art in heaven? Tenth Article Whether Prayer is Proper to the Rational Creature Objection 1. It would seem that prayer is not proper to the rational creature. Asking and receiving apparently belong to the same subject. But receiving is becoming also to uncreated persons, notably the Son and Holy Ghost. Therefore, it is competent to them to pray. For the Son said in John 14.16, I will ask my Father. And the Apostle says of the Holy Ghost in Romans 8.26, The Spirit asketh for us. Objection to Angels are above rational creatures, since they are intellectual substances. Now prayer is becoming to the angels, wherefore we read in Psalm 96, verse 7, Adore him, all you his angels. Therefore, prayer is not proper to the rational creature. Objection 3 further. The same subject is fitted to pray as is fitted to call upon God, since this consists chiefly in prayer. But dumb animals are fitted to call upon God, according to Psalm 146, verse 9, who giveth to beasts their food, and to the young ravens that call upon him. Therefore, prayer is not proper to the rational creatures. On the contrary, prayer is an act of reason, as stated above in Article 1. But the rational creature is so called from his reason. Therefore, prayer is proper to the rational creature. I answer that, as stated above in Article 1, prayer is an act of reason, and consists in beseeching a superior, just as command is an act of reason, whereby an inferior is directed to something. Accordingly, prayer is properly competent to one to whom it is competent to have reason, and a superior whom he may beseech. Now nothing is above the divine persons, and dumb animals are devoid of reason. Therefore, prayer is unbecoming both the divine persons and dumb animals, and it is proper to the rational creature. Reply to Objection 1. Receiving belongs to the divine persons in respect of their nature, whereas prayer belongs to one who receives through grace. 
the son is said to ask or pray in respect of his assumed, that is, his human nature, and not in respect of his Godhead. And the Holy Ghost is said to ask because he makes us ask. Reply to Objection 2. As stated in the first part, question 79, article 8, intellect and reason are not distinct powers in us but they differ as the perfect from the imperfect. Hence, intellectual creatures which are the angels are distinct from rational creatures and sometimes are included under them. In this sense, prayer is said to be proper to the rational creature. Reply to Objection 3. The young ravens are said to call upon God on account of the natural desire whereby all things each in its own way, desire to attain the divine goodness. Thus two dumb animals are said to obey God on account of the natural instinct whereby they are moved by God. Eleventh article. Whether the saints in heaven pray for us. Objection one. It would seem that the saints in heaven do not pray for us. A man's action is more meritorious for himself than for others. But the saints in heaven do not merit for themselves, neither do they pray for themselves, since they are already established in the term. Neither, therefore, do they pray for us. Objection to further. The saints conform their will to God perfectly, so that they will only what God wills, now what God wills is always fulfilled. Therefore, it would be useless for the saints to pray for us. Objection 3 further. Just as the saints in heaven are above, so are those in purgatory, for they can no longer sin. Now those in purgatory do not pray for us. On the contrary, we pray for them. Therefore, Neither do the saints in heaven pray for us. Objection 4. Further, if the saints in heaven pray for us, the prayers of the higher saints would be more efficacious, and so we ought not to implore the help of the lower saints' prayers, but only of those of the higher saints. Objection 5. Further, the soul of Peter is not Peter. If, therefore, the souls of the saints pray for us, so long as they are separated from their bodies, we ought not to call upon St. Peter, but on his soul, to pray for us. Yet the church does the contrary. The saints, therefore, do not pray for us, at least before the resurrection. On the contrary, it is written in Second Maccabees 15.14, this is he that prayeth much for the people, and for all the holy city, Jeremiah, the prophet of God. I answer that, as Jerome says, the error of Vigilantius consisted in saying that, While we live, we can pray for one another, but that after we are dead, none of our prayers for others can be heard, seeing that not even the martyrs' prayers are granted when they pray for their blood to be avenged. But this is absolutely false, because 
since prayers offered for others proceed from charity, as stated above in Articles 7 and 8, the greater the charity of the saints in heaven, the more they pray for wayfarers, since the latter can be helped by prayers. And the more closely that they are united to God, the more are their prayers efficacious. For the divine order is such that lower beings receive an overflow from the excellence of the higher, even as the air receives the brightness of the sun. Wherefore it is said of Christ in Hebrews 7.25, Going to God by his own power to make intercession for us. Hence Jerome says, against Vigilantius, If the apostles and martyrs while yet in the body and having to be solicitous for themselves, can pray for others, how much more now that they have the crown of victory and triumph. Reply to Objection 1. The saints in heaven, since they are blessed, have no lack of bliss, save that of the body's glory, and for this they pray. But they pray for us who lack the ultimate perfection of bliss, and their prayers are efficacious in impetrating through their previous merits and through God's acceptance. Reply to Objection 2. The saints impetrate whatever God wishes to take place through their prayers, and they pray for that which they deem will be granted through their prayers according to God's will. Reply to Objection 3. Those who are in purgatory, though they are above us on account of their impeccability, yet they are below us as to the pains which they suffer, and in this respect they are not in a condition to pray, but rather in a condition that requires us to pray for them. Reply to Objection 4. It is God's will that inferior beings should be helped by all those that are above them. Wherefore we ought to pray not only to the higher, but also to the lower saints. Else we should have to implore the mercy of God alone. Nevertheless, it happens sometime that prayers addressed to a saint of a lower degree are more efficacious, either because he is implored with greater devotion, or because God wishes to make known his sanctity. Reply to Objection 5. It is because the saints, while living, merited to pray for us, that we invoke them under the names by which they were known in this life, and by which they are better known to us, and also in order to indicate our belief in the resurrection according to the saying of Exodus 3.6, I am the God of Abraham, etc., Twelfth Article, Whether Prayer Should Be Vocal Objection 1. It would seem that prayer ought not to be vocal. As stated above in Article 4, prayer is addressed chiefly to God. Now God knows the language of the heart. Therefore it is useless to employ vocal prayer. Objection 2 further. Prayer should lift man's mind to God, as stated above in Article 1, Second Reply. 
but words like other sensible objects prevent man from ascending to god by contemplation therefore we should not use words in our prayers objection three further prayer should be offered to god in secret according to matthew six six but thou when thou shalt pray enter into thy chamber and having shut the door pray to thy father in secret but prayer loses its secrecy by being expressed vocally therefore prayer should not be vocal on the contrary it is written in psalm 141 verse 2 i cried to the lord with my voice with my voice i made supplication to the lord i answer that prayer is twofold common and individual common prayer is that which is offered to god by the ministers of the church representing the body of the faithful wherefore such like prayer should come to the knowledge of the whole people for whom it is offered and this would not be possible unless it were vocal prayer therefore it is reasonably ordained that the ministers of the church should say these prayers even in a loud voice, so that they may come to the knowledge of all. On the other hand, individual prayer is that which is offered by any single person, whether he pray for himself or for others, and it is not essential to such a prayer as this that it be vocal. And yet the voice is employed in such like prayers for three reasons. First, in order to excite interior devotion, whereby the mind of the person praying is raised to God, because by means of external signs, whether of words or of deeds, the human mind is moved as regards apprehension, and consequently also as regards the affections. Hence Augustine says in his letter to Proba that, by means of words and other signs, we arouse ourselves more effectively to an increase of holy desires. Hence then alone we should use words and such like signs when they help to excite the mind internally. But if they distract or in any way impede the mind, we should abstain from them, and this happens chiefly to those whose mind is sufficiently prepared for devotion without having recourse to these signs. Wherefore the psalmist, in Psalm 26, verse 8, said, My heart hath said to thee, My face hath sought thee. And we read of Anna, in 1 Kings one thirteen that She spoke in her heart. Secondly, the voice is used in praying as though to pay a debt, so that man may serve God with all that he has from God, that is to say, not only with his mind, but also with his body, and this applies to prayer considered especially as satisfactory. Hence it is written in Hosea 14.3, Take away all iniquity and receive the good, and we will render the calves of our lips. Thirdly, we have recourse to vocal prayer through a certain overflow from the soul into the body, through excess of feeling, according to Psalm 15, 9. 
My heart hath been glad, and my tongue hath rejoiced. Reply to Objection 1. Vocal prayer is employed, not in order to tell God something he does not know, but in order to lift up the mind of the person praying or of other persons to God. Reply to Objection 2. Words about other matters distract the mind and hinder the devotion of those who pray. But words signifying some object of devotion lift up the mind, especially one that is less devout. Reply to Objection 3. As Chrysostom says, Our Lord forbids one to pray in presence of others in order that one may be seen by others. Hence, when you pray, do nothing strange to draw men's attention, either by shouting so as to be heard by others, or by openly striking the heart, or extending the hands so as to be seen by many. And yet, according to Augustine, in his commentary on the Sermon of the Mount 2.3, it is not wrong to be seen by men, but to do this or that in order to be seen by men. End of question 83, part 2. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.